indeed, and thank you very much for that. Happy Sabbath. Glad to be with you all again. My apologies to the elders in charge for being a few minutes tardy, um, but I made it here. Let's uh, bow our heads for a, a quick prayer. Yahweh, Heavenly Father, Jesus, your Son, please send your Spirit to be with us this morning as we unpack a story of tragedy, of triumph, of confusion even. Give us wisdom to see your message, to see your heart in your word. Thank you so much for giving us your word so that you can speak to us. In your name, amen. The burning palace was a remarkably apt metaphor. In some the 50-some-odd years since Israel had decided to go its own way, she was now on king number five, who was currently burning with the palace. King number six was standing outside watching, undoubtedly with a mixture of anger and disgust, wondering how have we become this? Less than a century, Israel had gone from an empire to a kingdom literally burning itself apart in the backwaters of the hills. It was hardly but 60 years before, Israel was riding the high of the Davidic dynasty. David and Solomon from Jerusalem had built an empire whose borders stretched from Egypt to the Euphrates. They controlled the entire southern Levantine trade corridor. And in, into Israel had flowed wealth, unimaginable stones, became the same as silver, or rather silver became as valuable as stones. They had built wonders the world had not seen in Solomon's temple and his palace. The empire of Israel was one the world had not seen since the Egyptian pharaohs had ruled the new kingdom. And now you're here. Rehoboam's folly, of course, was the flashpoint of all this. In his arrogance, it's hard to call a 41-year-old man youthful, but in his, I guess, youthful or some sort of arrogance, he had decided to tick off um, an entire half of his kingdom. And so Israel had split into two, and David's empire fell apart. Judah to the south, lost Edom and Moab, lost Philistia, those kingdoms reasserted their independence. Shishak of Egypt decided to come through and beat them up. And so Judah was reduced essentially to a territory of the hills surrounding Jerusalem. Israel had not fared much better at all. She had lost Ammon and Aram, the latter of whom decided to take her vengeance out on Israel by taking territory that Israelites had held for hundreds of years. They had had to move the capital from the city of Shechem, a city on the, one of the central trade routes, a city that had a long history, to Tirzah, a backwater town hidden safely away in the hills of Manasseh. Unlike the stability offered by the respect the southern kingdom had for the uh, heirs of David, the heirs of Jeroboam had not quite gotten the same level of respect as Nadab, Jeroboam's heir, was assassinated in a coup just two years after taking the throne. 
and Jeroboam, the man who had freed, so to speak, the northern tribes from the southerners' tyranny, had his entire dynasty wiped out just two years after he himself had passed. Basha, the leader of the coup, well, he suffered almost the identically same fate. He ruled, he died, his son Elah reigned two years before he was assassinated in a coup and all of Basha's land had been wiped out. Barely 40 years into the northern Israel experiment, they had had two dynasties, two coups, and two houses completely wiped out. Zimri, the leader of this second coup, didn't have the same support that Basha had, or at least he grossly overestimated the amount of support he got. Because when he declared himself king, the rest of the army said, uh, no. Just no. Not yet. We want someone else to be king. We want someone who's strong. We want someone who's powerful. We want someone who we respect and trust. And we know just who that is. This is a man who's the one man who's managed to do something to reverse the tide of our self-collapse. This man's name was Omri. And so as he was taking back the city of Gibbethon from the Philistines, the army of Israel crowned him king, and he marched on Tirzah. Zimri saw the writing on the wall, and after a long and illustrious reign of seven days, realized he wasn't going to last, and said, you'll never take me alive, and lit the palace on fire in one of the most grand displays of suicide ever known. Aptly describing Israel's quick slide into chaos and self-destruction. Zamri stood there watching the palace burn. Something inside him must have slipped. Was this to be Israel? Was this their doom? I'm certain his frustration and anger had been building for a long time. After all, he wasn't a young man when he took the throne. That night, as he watched the fires burn, the resolve hardened in him that this would not be Israel's end. He was not going to let a burned-out palace in a backwater village in the hills of Manasseh be the legacy of his kingdom. And so he resolved he was going to not just help make sure Israel survived. He was going to make them the kingdom they had been under David. He was going to rebuild the empire. And he was going to etch his name into the stones of history. To his credit, he did it. Of course, it wasn't easy at the beginning. First four years, he had to deal with a civil war. Some guy named Tibni was also crowned king, making him the seventh king, the fifth king since their southern counterpart Asa had taken the throne just 27 years earlier. Think about that. Five kings in 27 years. So Tibni is also declared king. And so for the next four years, Omri finds himself locked in a civil war, one that he does not have. 
kids on the Agamemnon. But he wins because he was the commander of the army, because he was smarter, he was stronger, and he was bolder. And he wasn't going to let some guy named Tegan take his throne. Once he had the kingdom established, despite a nation exhausted from multiple changes in leadership and coups, and now a four-year civil war, he put the pedal to the metal on building his empire. He was a general, a military man after all. First thing he did was built up Israel's army. He revolutionized it. He modernized it. Brought in chariots. Brought in modern weapons of iron. Built up the numbers of, of his army. Built up their training. And as soon as he could, he launched them out. The country of Moab used to be under David's control and Solomon's control until the split. Then they had quietly reasserted their independence, rebuilt their kingdom, enjoying their peace. And suddenly, and unsuspectedly, Omri's Israelite army from the north started descending on And in a few short years, if that at all, Omri wiped out Moab's armies, destroyed her cities, and dethroned her king. And before the rest of the ancient Near Eastern world could blink, Omri stood in control of Moab. Now, Omri wasn't just picking on Moab for some land grab or easy target to let the rest of the world know, hey, Israel's here, although it certainly probably had that effect. You see, in the ancient world, the ancient Near Eastern world, there were two major trade arteries from Egypt to Mesopotamia and Anatolia, or eastern modern-day Turkey. On the west coast, on the west side rather, not the west coast, but the west side, there was the Way of the Sea, or the Western Highway. And this was the main one. It ran from northern Egypt up along the Sinai, northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, up the coast of Israel to about where modern Tel Aviv is. Then it jogs into Megiddo. Um, and then at Megiddo, it splits off into three branches. One branch goes east, directly east to the other highway along the east uh, side of the Jordan River. The northern route goes up to the Sea of Galilee, then to Hatzor, then to Dan, all the way up to Damascus, which is the gateway to Mesopotamia. And from there, it goes to Babylon, Assyria, and so on and so forth. The other branch goes back west to the coast to Akko, Tyre, and Sidon, the great Phoenician seaports. If you control Megiddo, you essentially control pretty much all trade that goes in and out of the entire eastern Mediterranean. As Tiglath-Pileser III would once remark, Megiddo is worth a thousand cities, which is also why Megiddo had the nasty habit of getting conquered and invaded every couple of years. It's rather valuable. Well, Omri already had Megiddo. What he didn't have was the other highway. The King's Highway that runs essentially through modern-day Jordan. Now, this highway would go all the way down to the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, so Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Qatar, UAE, that area, and then, of course, go north to Damascus, on to Mesopotamia. Well, Moab 
is on the east side of the Dead Sea. Omri conquered that and began to take control of the King's Highway. Now, connecting the King's Highway and the Western Highway were three cross points. The furthest one was in the south, and it went from the Edomite capital of Botsra, so south of the Dead Sea, in the uh, southern part of modern-day Jordan, to Beersheba, in southern Israel, out to Gaza. The other cross point was at Jericho, which was owned by Moab until Omri took it. And the third cross point was at Beth Shean in the Jezreel Valley, which Omri also had. But he wasn't done quite yet. You see, there was still the problem of Aram from the north and Damascus coming down and being a pain in his neck. As soon as he had Moab under control, Omri turned his forces to the Armenians. Armenians, sorry, not Moab, Armenians. Very different people. And he pushed them back. And we don't know exactly how far he pushed them back or how badly he beat them. We do know he took back the Golan Heights. He took the Bashan region of the, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And he forced the, Ar- the Arameans Aramean, to open up their trade centers in, their, in the city of Damascus to his merchants. In a few short years, Omri had taken Israel from on the verge of economic and political collapse to now controlling almost every single major trade node in the entire eastern Mediterranean territory. He controlled two of the three connecting points between the east and west highways. He controlled the most important trade node in Megiddo, And now he exerted political control over the gateway to Mesopotamia and Damascus itself. He controlled the king's highway from the borders of Edom south of the Dead Sea all the way through the Golan Heights north of the Sea of Galilee. In just a few years, Omri had turned Israel from a a self-destructive nation to the most dominant military and economic power in the region. That was only part of his plan. See, as he watched the palace burn, he realized something. Israel had been hanging on to her past too much. She was trying to be like Judah. She was trying to be David's kingdom light. And Omri realized Israel needed to be her own people, her own kingdom, and do things her own way. As soon as he had secured the throne, He spent six years trying to find a new capital. Tirzah was nothing but a monument to Israelite failure. They couldn't just pick any city. Megiddo wouldn't work. It had too much of a history tied to the Canaanites and their dynasties. Plus, it did have the nasty habit of getting conquered every few years. Dan was too far north, and that was too much of Jeroboam's thing, his shrines there. Same thing for Bethel, which was too far south and too small. And Shechem, Shechem just had too much of a history. Shechem was tied to Jacob. It's it's where Jacob first secured land in Israel. It's where 
Abimelech, the son of Gideon, tried to make himself king. And it's where Jeroboam first had himself crowned king. Omri was not going to piggyback his legacy, his dynasty, and his kingdom on anyone else's. He needed something new, something fresh, something clean. And that's when he found this hill owned by a guy named Shimei. It wasn't quite out as far maybe as he would have liked. It was still in the hills. But it was in an open, broad valley that opened out to the sea. It was an easy path to the western land. And it was also an unoccupied land. No one lived there. There was no town there, no city there. So he buys this hill and builds his masterpiece. He takes the top of the hill and cuts it down and builds a massive platform around it, much like Herod the Great would do some 800 years later in building the second temple. And on this platform, Omri builds a palace that would rival Solomon's temple and the palace of the cedars of Lebanon and any other royal structure in the world at its time. It still hasn't been completely uncovered. But from what we can tell, the central building of the complex alone covered half an acre. That was just one building. And he didn't just grab field stones like others would do and pile them up and then plaster them. No, no, no. He employed something called ashlar masonry to where the stones that would form the walls of his palace were cut at pristine right angles, perfectly dressed and embossed and decorated. It was certainly an expensive project, but the ashlar masonry probably wasn't even the most expensive part. That would be reserved for the ivory he used as wallpaper, earning the palace its nickname, the Ivory Palace. Omri was building a stamp, building a legacy, and making sure his legacy wasn't tied to anyone else's. And there was one more thing he had to do to ensure Israel's return. Religion. He was tired of watching the people walk backwards. See, Jeroboam had tried to take the Yahweh religion and tweak it a little bit so people wouldn't go to Jerusalem. They still essentially worshipped Yahweh, just in their own way, which was not the way Yahweh said to worship him, but that wasn't really what mattered to them, apparently. So they built their own shrines to Yahweh at Dan and Bethel and a few other places. And they kind of worshipped their own way. It was very much a halfway measure. And Omri knew it wasn't working. It wasn't keeping people from Jerusalem. They were just hanging on to the legacy of David and Solomon. If they were going to be Israel, they had to be something new. Now, Omri wasn't arrogant enough to start his own religion entirely, but he wanted a religion that had nothing to do with the past, nothing to do with Yahweh. And so again, he looked up. And he looked north, the city of Sin. He saw their worship of Baal, and he said, that's what I want. He married his son to the princess of Sidon, 
securing an alliance with one of the most important and powerful trading centers in the world, and also bringing in the religion. See, up to this point, Yahweh had still been worshipped, if in a twisted and inaccurate, incorrect way. But starting with Omni, the worship of Yahweh was not kicked off. He may not have utterly oppressed Yahweh worship like Ahab and Jezebel would following him. But he began Israel on the dark path to worshiping Baal over her own God. And in doing so, Omni secured his legacy as Israel's greatest king. His military legacy would last after his death. The Battle of Karkar some 20 years after Omri's death, his son Ahab would lead a coalition of the southern of the southern Levantine kingdoms against the rising Assyrian threat. And Ahab would field the biggest army of any of his allies, with 2,000 Israelite chariots and 10,000 Israelite soldiers. In a battle that, of course, the Assyrians claim a tremendous victory at. However, interestingly, the Assyrians go away after this battle for another 130 years. Karkar marks the limit of Assyrian expansion until Tiglath Pileser died. As for Omri's personal legacy, he makes one that rivals the Mesha was a Moabite shepherd after the time of Omri, after the time of Ahab who was very tired of paying taxes to the Israelite king. And so he led a reasonably successful rebellion against his Israel overlords. And he wrote about it in a stone stella that has been found, where he describes his battles, where he describes how Omri had come in and, and conquered his land, and then how he, Mesha, with the help of Chemosh, his god, had overthrown the oppressors from the house of Israel. It doesn't use the name Israel. The name of the nation of Israel is the house of Yahweh. Shalmaneser III in his black obelisk would depict a would show a picture describing King Jehu offering tribute and homage to Shalmaneser. Now in the Bible, Jehu is famous for slaughtering all of Ahab, or Omri's descendants, ending the what's called the Omri dynasty. Interestingly, though, Shalmaneser lists Jehu as the son of Omri from the land of Omri. In fact, Assyrian records only once ever call Israel Israel. They usually call it the land of Omri. Adad Narari III talks about taking taxes from the land of Omri. Tiglath Pileser III, 120 years after Omri's death, talks about how he invaded and took some of the lands of the house of Omri. And finally, Israel's doomed Sargon II himself brags in four separate places how he crushed and destroyed the land of the house of Omri. Israel was Omri. 
Amrahib built a legacy where he became synonymous with the nation of Israel. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking, but John, none of this is in the Bible. And you are correct. It is in the Bible. Omri is a very unusual character in the sense that unlike any other Israelite major character in the Bible, we know more about Omri from external sources than from what the Bible itself says. What we read this morning for our scripture reading is the extent of Omri's mentions in the entire Bible. It's 14 verses. That's it. Omri, the Israel's greatest king, the one whose name would become synonymous with the land itself, gets a grand total of 14 verses in the entire Bible, most of which are talking about other people anyway. We read what we read today was Omri's reign, and once it says the last words of that, Omri is never mentioned again. It's very, very The most powerful, greatest king in the entire history of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, gets the almost the exact same amount of space and breath as a guy who reigned for You see, the history in the Bible is not exhaustive. And not that it is a claim to be. It's actually very intentional and not an exhaustive history. Which is why at the end of every king's entry is the suggestion that if you want to find out more about King X or Y, you are free to consult the chronicles of the kings of Judah or the kings of Israel, depending on which, which side of the coin you're looking at. The historian of kings makes no attempt at an exhaustive history not what he's trying to do. He doesn't, he's not trying to give you a detailed history of Israel. What he is trying to do is record a history for a very specific purpose, a very specific message. You see, the book of Kings was written during the Babylonian exile. Okay, the, the book ends with the exile off into Babylon and actually about 37 years into the exile, the last the epilogue to Kings records uh, Jehoiakim, I think, uh, one of the last kings of Judah, being restored to the king's table of Babylon. So this is a book that was written well into the exile. And it was written to answer a very specific question of, how did we end up here? We are God's chosen people. We are the chosen of Yahweh. We have the covenant. We had a kingdom ruled by David and Solomon that, that expanded from Egypt to the Euphrates. It was an empire. How are we here? as exiles, homeless, nationless, in Babylon. As Psalm 137 mournfully comments, I sat by the rivers of Babylon and wept as we remembered Zion. He's trying to figure out how God's people, the people chosen of Yahweh, could end up and so what he's tracing, as the historian looks back through the records, looks back through the history of Israel and Judah, he's looking for where things went wrong. He's looking at a pattern of consistent rejection, consistently breaking the covenant they had made with Yahweh. And 
that is what he finds important. And through his divinely inspired eyes, we see what God cares about. Omri had left his mark on the world unlike few in history ever have. And God doesn't It doesn't matter what Omri did, all the great things he did for Israel, how he turned them from a nation on the brink of destruction to the economic and military power of its day. It doesn't matter. What matters is he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did more evil than any who had gone before him. He set Israel on a path self-destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. And he began a period of a, a several decade long period of the darkest point in Israel's history from a religious perspective even as she reached her absolute highest peaks of prosperity during worldly power. Under Ahab and Jezebel, Baal worship will be promoted Yahweh worship will be brutally oppressed because of Omri, on the track he set Israel on. It's interesting. Omri and Zimri, one that reigned for seven days, gets the same amount of mention as a guy who reigned for 12 years and did more in those 12 years than anyone else in the history of Israel did in their reigns. Yet there's someone else who gets mentioned in the Bible. A woman from the very land that Omri would oppress. She gets an entire book. Who was Ruth? What did she do? She was a Moabite widow who married a Bethlehemite farmer. She didn't build any monuments. She didn't conquer any nations. Set up trade routes, build boats. Who was Ruth? For that matter, there's another king, king of Judah, who gets several chapters in the book of 2 Kings. He tried to take on Assyria too. Didn't go so well for him. As Isaiah would describe the result of Hezekiah's rebellion against Assyria, Jerusalem was left like a hut in a cucumber patch. As much as we want to think about the story of God's miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 18, 185,000 Assyrians killed. Let's not forget, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, that wasn't a story of deliverance because you were either dead or on your way to Assyria. 46 walled cities did Sennacherib destroy. 70% of the population outside of Jerusalem was gone after he came through. Entire villages were wiped off the Yet Hezekiah is compared to David. Hezekiah gets chapter after chapter about him. Omri, who was way more powerful than Hezekiah, way more skilled and left his nation in a far better state than Hezekiah did, is mentioned in 14 verses. Only seven of those verses actually are focused on him.
Ruth is regarded as a woman, a mighty woman of valor. Hezekiah is the greatest king since David. But Omri? Omri did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He did more evil than those who had come before him. What we do The mark we leave on this world doesn't matter. It's easy for us to look around and see the great people of our time or even the great people of the past, those who amassed wealth or fame or power or all of the above, people whose names live on in history and will live on in history. Well, us, let's be honest, with maybe a few exceptions in this room, we're going to die. And within a few years, we will pass out of living memory. The only remembrance of us is going to be our name on a rock. Depressing. But that's just kind of the way it's probably going to go for most of us. Maybe if we're really lucky, we might get a Wikipedia entry. But that doesn't matter. God doesn't care about that. And why should we? We do because we want to secure our legacy. We want to secure our future and the future of those who come after us, just like Omri did. But that doesn't matter. God doesn't care about that. He is far more interested in a woman from nowhere who goes nowhere and doesn't do anything great. The only thing Ruth did was she followed Yahweh. She left her gods. She left her family to follow Yahweh. God doesn't care if what you do is an abject disaster and failure like Hezekiah. God doesn't care if you fail miserably at what you're trying to do. Because Hezekiah followed after Yahweh with his whole heart. And that's what God cared about. And that was the mark God wanted. It doesn't matter that he failed miserably against Assyria. It's okay. He made the mark that matters to God. As for Omri, he succeeded everything he did. And then some. He built an empire. He built a legacy that would last for hundreds of years. And God does not care. Because Omri refused to follow. He refused to let God lead in his life. He refused to take the opportunity to bring his people back to God and instead push them further away. And in the end, that was the only thing that God cared about. If Omri had ruled in Tirzah, and if Omri had not rebuilt Israel, if they had still been on the brink of self-destruction, but he had followed Yahweh, he would have gotten a far greater remembrance in God's record than for all the great things that he did. So think about your mark. And think about the mark you want to leave. And think about where do you want to leave your mark. Do you want to leave it here? Or do you want to leave it in eternity? Think about the mark. 